0: I want organizations to say our edgewalkers are really valuable. They're the ones who see the future. They're the ones that are willing to take risks, to try new things. And sometimes they're going to fail, but mostly they're going to move us forward towards a better future.
1: In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host, and a coach here at Quantivose. And our guest today is Dr. Judy Neal. Judy is, among many other things, a dear friend of mine, but she's also the author of Edgewalkers, people and organizations that take risks, build bridges, and break new ground. And I can't think of anyone in today's business who should not be an edge walker. So first of all, Judy, welcome.
0: Thank you, Brian, thank you. And we should also add that I've been a coaching client of yours.
1: That's true, that's true. So Judy, I want to start with a quote from edge walkers because I think it's a great place for us to kick this conversation off. Kermit the Frog used to sing, it's not easy being green. Edge walkers understand the message of that song. It's not easy being an edge walker. You see things that other people don't see. You know things in your bones that other people adamantly disagree with. If people really knew what you were about, they would think you were crazy. Sometimes you think maybe they're right. Maybe you are crazy. Yet you have a strong commitment to being authentic and being true to your values and vision. Like Don Quixote, you're going to keep tilting at woodmills, at least that's how it feels sometimes. What brought Judy Neal into the world of edge walkers?
0: Oh, well, all of that describes me and often feeling like I'm on the edge of a system or marginalized or not being seen and valued, and yet knowing in my bones that I have something to offer. And so I started interviewing other people that seem to be walking a similar path and trying to learn from them and share that with other people.
1: And how would you describe today's edge walker?
0: Well, an edge walker is someone who walks between worlds, however you might define that, and I can say a little bit about how I define it, and who builds bridges between those worlds. They do feel, and I think rightly so, that they're on the edge of a system, and they're not content with being in the middle of the mainstream, and they're not content with conforming. Um, so to go back to the some of the worlds that they walk between, the ones that are of most interest to me are the invisible world and the visible world, like shamans. They can get information from places that are not... Normally seen as rational and that some scientists call super rational beyond our rational ways of knowing into other ways of knowing and um, but they're also like cross-cultural cross-functional they they're just looking for how to integrate different worldviews, different skills, different functions, always looking for something that's a greater connection
1: the reason I said that I think we all need to be edge walkers today, is given the level of disruption that COVID did to all of our systems really. For our audience, probably most importantly is the systems of work, the work environment, the being indebted to the workplace, before COVID for so many people and coming out of COVID saying, this community thing is stupid. Saying a friend of ours that, that you and I were in a conversation with a few weeks ago saying, here I am sitting in the office alone because all of my customers are elsewhere in the country having the same on-screen meetings I would have had sitting in my home office. So how do you see the role of walkers? playing out in terms of helping us figure out where this future of work is going?
0: The edgewalkers are not content with the status quo. They're always wanting to challenge it. And so the five-day work week was the status quo. Showing up at the office was the status quo. A lot of meetings were face-to-face. That was the status quo. Zoom was a relatively new thing that really freed people up to connect more deeply, more regularly, more internationally. And there's a lot of new technology like artificial intelligence and chat GPT and so on that are constantly changing. And our education systems were training us to be comfortable with the status quo and a part of the machine. And people aren't happy with that anymore. That just doesn't work and we can't adapt quickly enough if we stay doing the things the way we've always done them.
1: Do you see edge walkers really as being guides into the future then?
0: Oh, absolutely. I have a model about how how edgewalkers fit into the way people look at change. Edgewalkers in that model are very future-oriented. Lots of folks are present-oriented, like, what do I need to do today? What's my task list? Some people are past-oriented. They're more interested in the way things used to be, and then many times— They used to be better than they are now because of all the disruption. But edgewalkers are always looking at what's next, what's emerging, what can I create, how can I disrupt things in a positive way? Uh, So they, they are visionaries, and they literally do have visions in the shamanic sense or the spiritual sense of being really visionary and seeing into the future because they care. They're always asking, what's next?
1: If you look at the world of business and society, who might you point to as some examples of edgewalkers that uh, a number of listeners might know?
0: Hmm. Well, one of my favorite edgewalkers that I got to interview for the book is no longer with us, but his name is Michael Stephen, and he was the CEO of AT&T Canada, And he really saw humanity as one race, and that from that perspective um, to really deeply value relationships with business leaders in China and Brazil and other places where he served. Um, And he was always looking for ways to honor human needs in the workplace in a very compassionate way. And he had two spiritual practices. Uh, One was that he did meditation every morning, and the other was that he went to Mass every morning as well. And so he was a deeply committed Catholic and also deeply committed to contemplative practices out of the Hindu tradition. So he was an edge walker in all kinds of ways.
1: My sense, and, and I may be wrong, because, as you well know, I'm walking on edges all the time. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> in in many ways as as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But my sense is many of us are unknown edge walkers, even to ourselves.
0: Absolutely.
1: Do you think that's a fair observation?
0: Yeah, yeah, I do. Because the most traditional organizations are uncomfortable with edge walkers. And so they um, tend to marginalize them. And there's a price to pay for being too innovative, too challenging to the status quo. So people tend to deny their own edges in order to fit in. Um, but I, I think they sell a piece of their soul when they do that. They pay a price and it can affect their health, their stress levels and their performance. Um, so they're not allowed to be. Well, I shouldn't say allowed. They choose not to be more authentic because they're not powerless. We're not. None of us are powerless. But you know, I think of you, Brian, as the four-day work week is one example. Well before other people were thinking about that. So you know, how do you see yourself as an edge walker with ideas like that and the things that you work on?
1: As as you said, it hasn't always served me well in business, but. Even back in the 1980s, when I was a management consultant at KPMG, they had me heavily invested in sort of looking over the horizon. And I did change management consulting even back then. So what are the next big changes in this industry? And how do we prepare to serve clients as they come up to and move through those changes? The reason it didn't serve me well is when they decided that they had to cut staffing, I was one of the first to go because I wasn't billing all those hours out to someone else. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I think, again, yeah, um, Tony Carnese and I trademarked four-day work week. That trademark actually came through two weeks after COVID hit. But it was something that we had started working on even a year before that. One of the things that has really surfaced for me, and it's the basis of a book I'm writing now, is that the leadership paradigm, and by leadership, I mean from the C-suite to the front line, the leadership paradigm that we lived with going into COVID in many, many of our organizations, the very top-down command and control type of leadership is on its way out. And so a year ago, uh, pretty much all of 2022, I was publishing weekly newsletters in LinkedIn about what I then called enlightened management, what I'm now calling the enlightened leadership. Um, Because today's workforce, today's business requires a different kind of leadership than we had three years ago. And then again, in my own personal life, I'm an edge walker in many ways, including again, a spiritual practice that draws from Native American traditions that draws from Eastern traditions and so forth.
0: So you actually were an edge walker without having a name for it. You didn't know that's what it could be called, Uh, but you've always lived on the edge.
1: Yeah, and and, uh, as you say that, I'm going back even further. Um, I got drafted out of graduate school. Oh no. (laughs) I uh, ended up from 1972 to 1976 being a drill sergeant in the Air Force, basic training instructor. And inevitably, almost without exception, the trainees that Frank Orsache, my co instructor for most of that time, and I, inevitably, our trainees were award winning in the squadron. And I was constantly told, you'd be a better military training instructor if you cut your hair shorter (laughs) if you shine your shoes more you know and i'll fast out i would go in on weekends not all the time not with every group it really depended on where they were in their development but i'd teach them visioning Mm -hmm. and how visioning can change our state of being sometimes in very uncomfortable circumstances So, yeah, I guess I've been an edge walker for a while.
0: (laughs) And I love that story because not only were you an edge walker, you were bringing out the edge walker qualities in other people and teaching them edge walker skills, which, you know, they were award winning and you were the mole that they wanted to whack a mole and push you down because you didn't conform. And that's part of the uncomfortableness of organizations that my work, I want to change that. I want organizations to say, our edgewalkers are really valuable. They're the ones who see the future. They're the ones that are willing to take risks, to try new things. And sometimes they're going to fail, but mostly they're going to move us forward towards a better future. So I'm maybe tilting at windmills, (laughs) to use another metaphor, Uh, but... There are organizations, particularly social entrepreneur organizations, that really get that, that are beyond profit and that really want to make a difference to human society.
1: Judy, you just mentioned edgewalker skills. Could you tell us what some of those skills are?
0: Well, yeah, I'd love to. Um, These all come from interviewing leaders mostly in business, some in the art world and, and other worlds. Michael Stephen, as I mentioned earlier, was one of them. And the looking at what they do, because I would ask them in the interview, how do you walk between these worlds that you walk between? What skills allow you to do that? And the first skill... Um, as they told me their stories and, and, you know, like like you just told about taking the the trainees and teaching them visionary skills. The first skill is what I call knowing the future. And some of my colleagues in Edgewalkers International, my company, they uh, talk about sensing the future. But that skill has three parts to it. And one way we know the future is what I call the traditional way of knowing the future, like forecasting, economic forecasting or human resource forecasting, which pretty much is linear. It's predicting the future from the past. And that serves us well when we're in a stable environment. Yeah, who's in a stable environment these days, right? (laughs) Those were the good old days. And the second way is what I call intuitive. Uh, And it's so interesting to interview leaders and to find out that many of them Well, they don't talk about it, but they use intuition. And uh, it's interesting, the men typically use the word, I feel it in my gut. And the women tend to say, I feel it in my heart. But there's this way of knowing that isn't predicting the future from the past. It's a feeling, sensing way of knowing that they don't talk about because it'll affect the stock market, but they trust it. And the third way is called co-creating with the universe. You, you co-create the future by visioning what is your future ideal. You dream it into being, and then you get tactical, and you do the strategic planning and the setting up the milestones and, and working towards it in the typical way we might create something. But it begins like uh, Peter Senge and others talk about the emergent future. You're calling the emergent future into being and then giving it energy, taking action. So that's one of the skills is uh, the sense of knowing the future. The second skill is risk-taking. And the risk-taking was really interesting when I interviewed people because from the outside, some of the major changes they made in life and work seemed very risky to others. But when you ask them about it, they would just say, I knew, I knew this was the way to go. I knew this would be all right, and I can't tell you why. So, you know, it's making some major big shift, kind of betting the farm, as entrepreneurs like to talk about, um, but going for something that is bigger than most people think is possible. And succeeding, now I'm forgetting the third. I don't have my book in front of me.
1: <laughs> I want to go go back to the first, actually, mm-hmm. because I listened to you describe Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Defining, in some sense, where you want to be and then setting out on that quest to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You also talked about leaders women sensing it, feeling it in their heart, men in their gut. And that brings me to the neuroscience behind that because yeah, the stock market may not like to listen to it, but it's real. In our hearts and in our guts are the same motor neurons, the same sensory neurons as in our heads, the same chemical, electrochemical activity as in our heads. And some neuroscientists will now talk about the cardiac brain, the enteric brain. Mm-hmm. Um, some will call it the, the cardiac cluster or cardiac neural network and, and so forth. But there is no question that our hearts and our guts are intelligent.
0: <laughs> and you use that in your coaching,
1: the I did. three brains. I, I, I remember I'm a did. good client. <laughs> I absolutely do. And so being an edge walker takes courage,
0: which comes from the French liqueur, not liquor, (laughs) the heart, which the word courage comes from that French word heart. And again, though, it feels it looks like courage to other people. It doesn't feel like courage to the edge walker because of this inner sense of calling, inner sense of purpose, just a knowing that they can't be who they were meant to be if they don't take these steps. So it's quite an interesting paradox that they look courageous, but they feel like they're just following their path.
1: And that takes me back, in part, to the beginning of this conversation because, as we look at the Great Resignation coming out of um, COVID and and coming into that era where there was the back to office call and and so forth, just unprecedented numbers of people stepping up and saying, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I'm not gonna commute four or five hours a day. I'm not gonna sit in the office until my boss goes home so he or she thinks that I'm a good worker. I'm not gonna, do this job that has no meaning to anyone, except the people who are making money off of me. And again, it it looks like courage, but it's answering your calling, answering your your living into your identity, I think.
0: Absolutely, and there's so many things that have changed since COVID that allow for more entrepreneurship, the the technology does. There's such a need for individuals to um, be able to supply services worldwide even through not having to get on an airplane and travel, but to be able to work virtually. And there's also a hunger for more work-life balance and being able to be home with the spouse and the children and the pets and It's like so many things are changing in the environment that people's hunger to be themselves and follow their calling is more supported by leaving, unfortunately, than by staying. And that breaks my heart because I really would like the edge walkers in particular, who are usually the first to go because they see the signs And so you lose your high talent pretty quickly. I would love for the edgewalkers to be able to stay in the organization, be innovative, have greater impact if only the top leaders can understand their own edgewalkerness and then create systems that support somebody who's on the edge and doesn't conform in the traditional way. And there's a couple of organizations I describe in my book that, that had some ways of doing that. There was one in a, um, a utility company in Connecticut, a gas company, that was regulated and then they deregulated in the, in the state. And these people who just had to go buy the book all the time and, um, you know, just do things to make sure the government didn't cause problems for the, what they were doing, uh, they didn't know how to think innovatively. And so they had a, they had an Edgewalker Human Resource Director who said, I'm going to create a team of our radicals and rebels. And she called them the Cowboys. And she honored them. She had them meet every month, you know, bought them lunch, and said, What are we missing as we move towards the future? What can you see that we can't see? What advice would you give us? And so she institutionalized this Edgewalker group. You know, she called them the Cowboys," but it's the same idea. And I just loved that. I thought that was very innovative and, and valuable in terms of honoring differences and listening to these voices that normally are marginalized.
1: I met you in
0: 2006. Yeah. <laughs> That's the year the book was published.
1: And somewhere between 2006 and now. I must have loaned my book to somebody because when I went to start to prepare for today, I couldn't find it. And I went online and was disappointed to find that it's no longer in print. Where can people learn more about Edgewalkers?
0: Well, there's my website, edgewalkers.org. That would be You know, one simple place. And there's lots of articles there and excerpts from the book. Amazon does have lots of used copies. And you said you got a copy that the library sold. The other thing is that I did an audio book um, because the publisher was an academic publisher. And they always charge way too much for books. And I wanted to make it more accessible. So I did an audio book with nine CDs where I read the whole book. And uh, you know, made these CD packages that that people can buy. Uh, it does have one little glitch in it in terms of sound quality that I never fixed, but maybe that's making it a little more edgy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that can be purchased from the website. We also have monthly Edgewalker Cafes in our community because I've been really wanting to encourage people who are Edgewalkers to know they're not alone because often, um, like in the quote that you read before, you, when you're on the edge, you feel crazy sometimes because you can see and know things, but there's no justification or evidence for it, and still you know in your bones that you're seeing something of value. And so I wanted to encourage, provide courage for people who identify as edge walkers to push further on their edge because we all benefit when they do, as long as they do it from an ethical place. I really want to support the edge walkers who uh, really are visionary and want to make a difference. I want them to know they're not crazy. They're tuned into something emerging. So those monthly edge walker cafes, provide a way to do that. Information on that is on our website and the monthly calls are recorded that people can go back to see. Uh, And then I do edge walker training and coaching and various other things that can help people really embody who they truly are at a deep level.
1: Judy, at the start of this episode, you said, what drew you to edge walkers is you're an edge walker. I just want to reassure everyone that that is more than true. Thank you. Judy Neal, thank you for this conversation.
0: Thank you, Brian. I also know you're an edge walker too, and that's one of the things that helps us to work together to be friends and colleagues. Thank you for all